I am Alana from Chicken House Press, and this is Writer's Chat. I got to sit down with Ace Baker, the author of How to Make a Killing Jar, which is a collection of short stories that is coming out very soon from Chicken House Press. Now, back in 2021, I ran a paid fiction contest that Ace entered with a short story that actually is part of this collection. He ended up winning that full contest, so that resulted in the publication of his winning story in an anthology with the eight finalists and a cash prize of several hundred dollars, as well as the opportunities to submit a manuscript to me for the potential of publication and he sent me this collection I just I fell in love with it his voice is so unique his approach to things it's so unlike anything else I have ever read and so together we have polished it and made it all pretty packaged it up really nicely and we are getting ready to launch this on August 30th so we're just over a month away from launch I'm going to share the back cover blurb with you so you get a little tease of what it's all about utilizing an arsenal of tools amassed from years of study and teaching Ace Baker unleashes a powerful collection of 12 plus 1 tales always compelling sometimes irreverent often shocking revealing layers and levels not often achieved through short stories. How to Make a Killing Jar will linger long after the last page is read, proving the world of fiction can unveil some harsh, hard, and sometimes humorous truths about the human condition. And because Ace is so prolific and he has entered an innumerable amount of contests over his writing career, he has amassed a great collection of endorsement statements, some of which we have been able to utilize right on the cover of his book. Like this one, love, heartbreak, and redemption, all sliding past each other in overlapping layers of depth and meaning. And that is from Diana Gabaldon. She is the author of the Outlander series, which is huge, more than 50 million copies sold. So a great privilege to be able to share that on the cover. We also have this from the late Jack White, a tour de force that left me breathless and awed by the indelible images that thrust into my awareness. It is a searing piece of writing, terse, taut, and terrific in its brilliant intensity. And I'm just going to share one more. This is from Vancouver's first poet laureate, George McWhorter, a choreographed chaos of feeling and action. So there you have it. I don't need to say anything more about this collection. Um, that really sums it up. It is just powerful. It is amazing. You need it in your life. So enough from me. I'm going to let Ace tell you so much more in his own words in our interview. So please enjoy my conversation with author Ace Baker. Okay, so how to make a killing jar. <laughs> I'm so excited about this collection and so pleased and excited that you trusted me with it and oh, let me go a- let me go on this journey with you because it's I I just I love this collection. I love these stories. I think there's so much depth and value and 
lessons and questions and like it's just so full of richness and I can't wait to get it out in the world how are you feeling oh it's crazy I mean uh well I think the first thing is um trust your editor yeah usually that that comes to mind (laughs) Uh, a lot of good calls by you so far uh certain story to take out of the mix and um you know other other smart edits so that's good but yeah getting excited to see it come out and mm-hmm. um, hopefully get it into the hands of people and have them read it. I think short stories are a little more accessible now. People's attention spans are a little shorter. So that's something you can pick up, put down. Yes. Yeah. yeah. As long as we can do a good job of being really loud about it, yeah. <laughs> people are going to embrace it. It's yeah. the real burden is getting it into their hands. That's always the hardest, hardest part of of any project like this. Um, you've made some real inroads with opportunities out where you are. You're in BC. Um, yep. So you've been invited to present at the big, um, what's it called? Oh, SIWC. Yeah, Surrey International Writers Conference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So do you want to share a bit about what you're going to be doing there? Well, um, I... Originally, I was going to be doing uh, two sessions. One is on actually contests, what to look out for, what kinds of things they can do for writer platform, um, how to find good ones, ones to avoid, stay away from, things like that to help writers out. And then uh, the other one is more of a deep dive on using motif, um, like the butterfly Uh, in the killing jar Mm -hmm. and uh, how that can kind of deepen the fiction and just pull the story together. And so that's kind of a deeper one. And then when they uh, invited me to do those two, I asked them, because I teach a lot of young writers, I asked them, uh, do you want me just to do a session for your young writers? Give them like an intensive, Uh, the adults are paying you know, hundreds of dollars for intensives for a three hour session. But I said, uh, I teach a lot of young writers. Why don't we just give them a session with their registration? So they agreed to that. So I'm doing three hours with the young writers and uh, just things, a little bit of fiction technique, a little bit of poetry technique, and a little bit of sort of getting your work out there in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, So those are the three that I'll be doing. And doing a little bit of editing blue pencil work that kind of thing too okay so you you've been a teacher for year like your entire adult life yeah i'm from small town saskatchewan and my first job was in a small town in saskatchewan and it would i would have classes like grade seven eight nine health in the library because we can put 40 kids there and things like that so i had real mixes uh, my first seven years then I had seven years middle school uh, what we call sort of grade six seven eight out here and uh, then I've had maybe like close to 20 years high school so yeah I've been doing that a long time now that you're in high school is your focus more on English yeah actually I'm kind of fortunate because I'm able to teach a lot of creative writing So I teach creative writing at a grade 11, 12 level. So that's kind of 
15 to 17 year olds out here. Yeah. And uh, so that's the majority of my load. And then I have some straight English courses too. With the creative writing, is it mostly kids who actually are passionate and really interested or do you get it? You get a mix. Get a mix. Like I have a, a grade 12 creative writing that's an elective. So the kids signing up for that, they want it. Yes. They want to be there. So they're very motivated. They work really hard. Uh, grade 11, it's one of the options they can have to get their grade 11 credit. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if they hate the other two <laughs> options, they go, well, I'll just go into creative writing or something. So they're not always sold on it, but hopefully we get more of them there once, uh, once they join. Right. <laughs> yeah. Have there been students that you've seen a real spark in? I mean, the, I, I guess it's always exciting when you teach students who are going to be, you know, a hundred times the writer you are. And I've, I've had like award-winning novelists go through my class. I've had huge contest winners and things like that. So it's always exciting to see them move on and do great things. Wow. Um, and then a lot of them publish even while they're in the class. So really? Yeah. So that's kind of nice. I have sort of a window wall along the corridor and um, I always post student work that gets published or um, like where they're publishing, what they're doing, and it kind of motivates other students to give it a go to. For sure. That's really special. Yeah. Is there ever a part of you that feels a bit of jealousy or is it just pride? I think like, you know, writers always battle that like, wow, you did what? Like one of my students last year, he got a thousand dollars for, I think about 250 words. I'm like, hmm, that's beautiful pay. <laughs> no, it's mostly pride in seeing that they're applying what they're doing and they're getting past the, the nerves to get their work out to other people. Yeah, there's always that fear when you get started of sending your work out. What if it's rejected? Yeah, and seeing them do it so young. Yeah, that's well, they get that early start. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. they can build up that thick skin. <laughs> yeah, when true. they're young and it gets easy to bounce back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How about you? Did you did you start writing at an early age or? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was writing stories. I like I don't remember not writing stories. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, my family, we didn't have a television, so I read. Wow. Read so much. So I think that informed my storytelling a lot. And I had to fill my time somehow. So I yeah, I read and I made up stories. Yeah. We yeah. tried to have a deal with our kids, two hours of reading for one hour of electricity. And that worked until they got <laughs> to a certain age. But yeah, uh, it gets hard. Did you have a teacher in your own um, elementary or high school experience who really influenced your writing path? Yeah, I had a I had a grade 10 English teacher. His name was Mr. Barton. And uh, he was a very good teacher, but uh, I have a little bit of a big mouth sometimes. And I called them out in school uh, one day in front of the class, like, you're a pretty good teacher, but you suck at teaching poetry. And so he gave me like a two week detention, uh, showed me what lessons plans were, what unit plans were, forced me to plan a unit of poetry and teach it to my classmates. Wow. I loved it. And two years later, he was recommending me for scholarships that allowed me to um, not be a farmer. Let's put it that way. So yeah, very influential. Wow. That's what an opportunity. 
Oh Did yeah. You was, your whole unit in grade 10. Yeah, yeah grade That's 10. Incredible. That's where wow. I knew oh, I got to, I've got to be teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Have you stayed in contact with him? Uh, I did for a while and then lost track, but he definitely knows. Yeah. yeah good. Good. It's, it's nice. Sometimes teachers never know, right? The impact they have. So have you had students come back to you? Yeah. I, this year I had a student, I told her before, I said, you're destined to be a teacher. That's what you're meant to do. So sorry, but that's what you're supposed <laughs> to do. And she just graduated top of her class and uh, is about to do her practical work. So quite a bit of that. Um, I think, you know, apple trees are supposed to produce apples. So if you see your students going on and doing things, maybe something stuck. Yeah. But that's a whole group of teachers they've had all the way through, not one. But uh, it's nice, nice to see them succeed. You mentioned farming. So you come from a farming family? I do. Um, my dad uh, used to work on the farm and on the railways. So pretty heavy duty, you know, blue collar work, get your hands dirty kind of stuff. A lot of that influence seems to come through in many of the stories in How to Make a Killing Jar. Is it impossible not to let your real life experiences come into your stories? Yeah, I think that's always going to have a little bit of an impact. What got me into my first love of writing was poetry. And what got me into that, I read some early Patrick Lane stuff. And he has some pretty nasty poems. Uh, one of his poems, Because I Never Learned, it includes this sort of small town dad and son walking down the gravel road. There's a cat that's been hit by a car and it's kind of been run over on one end and is still alive. And the son kind of does the right thing and lifts his work boot and puts it down, crushing the skull of the cat, putting it out of its misery. And I'm like, you can write poetry about that. And okay, I have a few stories. So that kind of got me into it. And uh, so that comes through, but I try to limit it. Uh, I don't want to write all hillbilly stuff. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the ways I do that is often I'll write it with a female protagonist. Sometimes it takes me out of the story more. Yeah, I got that from a writer at a conference who said, oh, this is something that helps me yes. not have my voice in every character. That was something I wanted to ask you about because you do right from the perspective of a female how how in the world <laughs> do you do that <laughs> you do it really seamlessly and i think if someone didn't know who the writer was they would think this is a woman writing this which yeah i hope you accept that as a huge compliment no i think yeah i think that's like three sisters aunts um thousands of females i've taught so and yeah. worked with so I, I think um, I'm able to do that. I've had a few contests where they were judged blindly. And then when the judge found out, they were like, you've got to be kidding me. Jack White was like that. He was like, I thought 100% sure this was a female writing this story. So, so yeah, high praise when it, when it comes off the right way. I think it's an incredible skill. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> of course, you're welcome. Um, do you have a favorite story within the collection? Um, I think the title story, The Killing Jar, is definitely my favorite just because of what's in it. So I think the layers are there. I think it started with seven poems um, that I was kind of laying out on the table. And then when I saw them on the table, I'm kind of like, 
forming a story in my mind. Uh, oh, this one gives me character and a setting. Oh, that one would show me a complication. And then I kind of ran this narrative through them and then built in a lot of craft into the, the story. So that one probably took the longest to write. And I think with the biggest payoff, I think it's still my favorite. Mm-hmm. And it's had yeah. a lot of accolades. Um, it's yeah. done really well on its own. Yeah. And the one for Chicken House Press, The Things We Leave Behind, mm-hmm. Blank Spaces Contest, Less Cocaine, More Cocoa. That one, again, it was a shorter story, but it was crafted very carefully. Mm-hmm. So I would say the newer one and the older one, those are kind of my two favorites. I also really love the Singapore Garden. Oh, yeah. I found it so powerful and disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. How do you access those dark places without losing yourself in there? There's some kind of initial spark that gets you thinking. And then once it becomes about story and character, then I can focus on that. And so uh, once I'm into the story, I'm into the story and it's not maybe not affecting me once I'm in into the characters. I think it would be harder if I was writing memoir or something like that. And it's, there's no getting away. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's make-believe, it's a little easier. It is. It is. Yeah. These are characters and not actual people. And have you physically traveled to some of the places that you talk about in your stories? Yeah, actually, um, my Singapore garden, I was there visiting my in-laws. Near where one of my brother-in-laws lives, there was the place that uh, the book is based on. So I saw this building, this old colonial building called a black and white, and it had a tree growing up right through the middle of it because it had just been abandoned and they put a big fence around it but you could still see the top of the building. And I took a photo of it. So my brother-in-law, he was like, oh, there's that should be a haunted house story. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. Except I suck at writing haunted house <laughs> stories. So uh, I knew something bad was going to happen there. And uh, it just kept eating away at me. I need to write a story with that. Setting. So, so yeah, sometimes if you've been there, it really adds that element. And you did send me the picture of that house. Yeah, yeah. So cool. The timeline of writing these stories. So some were written years ago. Yeah. More recent. What is your lifespan for for this book? Wow. That's a good question. I think it's probably about maybe a dozen years, a little bit more. Okay. Um, I I think uh, The Killing Jar originally came out as Victory Girl, I think 2012, mm-hmm. something like that. So yeah, about a dozen. Just writing in general, do you want to talk a little bit about your process? Are you an everyday writer? Are you just as inspiration strikes? What what does it look like for Ace Baker to sit down and write? I, I'll write something every day. Sometimes it's just pure garbage, but it'll get done. Uh, I encourage my kids to do the same. So we do something called writing scales, like musicians have scales to get them warmed up before they get going on the piece they're working on. So we'll take a writing prompt of some kind and just give it five, 10 minutes. 
and go crazy and uh, see what comes up. And sometimes you write a page or two and there's maybe six words you like um, when you look back at it. But sometimes those six words might lead to something. So uh, time well spent. So I find that consistency is important, not necessarily quality. If you're consistent, it makes it a little easier for the creative wheels to turn because a lot of our world is not creative. It's very like nuts and bolts, do this, do that, dot the I, cross the T, that kind of thing. So it breaks you out of that. I, I, so, I've yeah, never I heard that before, writing scales. I love that. Yeah, just like warm-ups. Yeah. A lot of my kids who are a bit creative, they'll be in art, they'll be in band. So the band kids got me thinking, oh, you often practice music scales. What's the purpose? Oh, we're just kind of warming up, getting into it. Oh, we need writing scales. So the beginning of our class starts that way every day. Cool. And for me too, that's the start of my day, four (laughs) o'clock. 4 a.m.? Yeah, yeah. Oh. (laughs) Why? Uh, It's so quiet. It's like you're the last person on earth. So I can get a lot of writing done, a lot of work done when everyone else is sleeping. Wow. How early do you go to bed at night? (laughs) Like 11, 12, something like that. Okay. So you're, you're working on five hours. Yeah. Yeah, Four hours. If it's uninterrupted, it's beautiful. Wow. Okay. (laughs) That's dedication. That is good for you. That's great. (laughs) Uh, So poetry is your first love. Yep. Do you have, you have collections of poetry that you've written? I do. Right now I have one that's not embarrassing that I'm, I, I will try and publish. I think you write a lot of bad poetry before you write good poetry. It's probably the same with most genres, but I, right now I have a collection. I'll, I'll try and get out there. Yeah. Uh, as much as possible. And you do weave poetry into your your short story writing. I assume you'll do the same in long form as well. I think sometimes poetry is a, a bit like therapy. It's like journaling for people. So if you have a character who kind of leans on it as it's like their diary, but not a different form. So once in a while, I'll weave it in for a character where this is something important to them. And we never read about that. We don't read about like characters who oh, find literature a big part of their life because it's usually boring to read. <laughs> uh, but if you have them writing some of it, maybe it's a little more interesting. Yeah. Um, I also think that you weave poetic language through your prose. The fact that you are a poet really shines through, which we heard from um, Rachel, who was the grand prize judge of the Blank Spaces contest. I think she had talked about how as soon as she learned you were a poet, she was like, oh, this all makes so much more sense. And I think that's not something we see from a lot of contemporary writers or genre writers. So I I just think it's special and it makes your work unique. It's going to stand stand alone, stand aside from from other stuff. So I just think that's I think that's cool that you're leaning into your first love and applying it to to your other writing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I kind of shift like all of a sudden short fiction has my focus and then, you know, move to other things. But um, but yeah, I, I think that will stay with me. Yeah, it's just, it's part of your voice. Yeah, I like writers who do that. Like Anthony Doerr is very gifted that way. Um, he, he wrote the book, All the Light We Cannot See, that one. But his short fiction is 
I think better than his Pulitzer Prize winning novel, because in his short fiction, he really works the craft in. And I was amazed to find out he doesn't write poetry. I couldn't believe it because his language is like that. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the writers I love, they're able to do that with their language and still tell a good story. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite poet right now? Yeah, I I would say starting out, the big influence was Patrick Lane. But later on in life, probably my favorite currently is Evelyn Lau. She's a BC poet. She was poet laureate for BC a few years back. First, I started really reading and kind of, I want to say dissecting, but dissecting her work. And then I had a chance to have a few meetups with her. And she looked at some of my poetry and I think the one meetup I was able to do while she was poet laureate, they had this thing they ran through the public library and you sent in writing and if they thought, okay, maybe it's up to stuff, you can meet with her. She'll give you some feedback on some poetry. So I gave her about a dozen poems, probably machine gunder. Mm-hmm. And very quickly she went through, oh, that's nice, but let's leave that. Oh, that's nice, but let's leave that. She probably pulled seven to put to the side and showed me the five I should concentrate on, told me what was good and what might need some work. And I reworked them. Every single one ended up winning a contest somewhere. Wow. Um, so yeah, I probably owe her some money. Uh, (laughs) yeah and uh she does a lot in the writing community out here she's been to our school so yeah quite impressed with what she's doing novel writing yeah you have some in a drawer yeah I do like some that'll stay in the drawer (laughs) yeah 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 have you have you always dabbled in long form or is that just something you visit every once in a while yeah I have like I keep plugging away at it um I'm learning I'm getting better but, uh, you know, there's a lot of really bad early novels that we'll never see the light of day for good reasons. I have some in-betweeners, like I've written The Killing Jar into novella, about 20,000 words. I'm considering pushing that to a literary novel. And then I have some commercial novels I'm working on right now. So, um, but like multiple at the same time. Yeah, I have kind of two different sci-fi sets that I'm kind of playing with but it's hard for me when I'm teaching full-time to handle a long-form genre Mm -hmm. like a short story I can see the end I can see finishing it I can see polishing it but it's hard to stop and start and stop and start a novel when you're full-time working so I find that difficult sure now do you do any work in the summer or do you take that time to really focus on your own creative projects I used to do like summer school all that kind of thing now I tend to kind of enjoy my summers Um, last year was a month in Singapore and that's where the novel came from or the story came from my Singapore garden um so that was a beautiful trip this this year it's more stick around home get some writing done get some more innovations done that kind of thing next year maybe Machu Picchu yeah hopefully something that yeah so I quite like my summers I I don't really want to teach during summer right now yeah yeah are you part of a writing group or do you have a support system around you that you lean on or um support others outside of teaching and yeah I used to do there's a little writing group in a city close to us Port Moody and I used to go there and it was kind of I don't know it, it wasn't a a strong group there were like 
people who would come and go and it would be different people every time. So I found that a little disjointed. So currently I don't, I would love to find a good group where the same people show up every time. Uh, haven't been able to do that yet, but uh, hopefully make some more connections through writing conferences and find some like-minded people. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to get other eyes on your work. Um, my wife is like an English honors graduate. So sometimes she'll give something a read and go, no, no, no. <laughs> How can you miss this or whatever? So uh, sometimes it's my wife uh, who gets first eyes on something. But I think it's important to have other people look at it. And they're going to see things you just miss for sure. As mm-hmm. I found out when you looked at my stories. <laughs> of my- By the way, that's impossible. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. It's all part of the process. It is, yeah. It's it's all good. And it's kind of nice, like, catching things before they get out there, right? Or before they oh, get yeah. printed. Someone goes, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, the the most, more embarrassment we can avoid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the better. Yeah, yeah. There's no no need for carelessness. Yeah, very true. You were, you were mentioning um, process. I should just pull one thing here for you. One of the parts I have uh, of my process that's a little bit different, I think, maybe because I'm a teacher who's writing, but I I tend to use a lot of um, essential questions to deepen a story. So for The Killing Jar, my big question that was in my mind when I was fleshing that story out was, how do we form and shape our identities? For my Singapore garden, I had a couple. I had like, what are the elements that build a strong friendship? And then how do friendships change over time? So what would be strong enough to break a bond once it's there? So I kind of had these questions. So even before I knew what essential questions were, I look back at my journals. I always asked a bunch of questions before I started writing. I I find... You know, that's very helpful. You don't want to preach in the story, but you want to have a point. You want to have some kind of deeper theme that's there or that keeps you on track when you kind of stray. So you're asking those questions before you even start writing. Yeah, I think it's sort of like very often when I teach kids novel writing in grade 12, we do a little bit of planning. So I walk them through sort of a seven step plan and not everybody plans Mm-hmm. But I think if you have a plan, at least you know you'll have something novel length and not a long, short story. So when I walk them through the plan, it starts with a single sentence, like the New York Times bestseller description of your book. What is it about? That's a sentence usually. So if you have that sentence, it always draws you back if you get squirrel moments or you start to stray. It's like, no, my book is about this. Why am I making this minor character too important or or something? And it, it just pulls you back. So I find that I use, yeah, a lot of essential questions when I plan things out. Usually helps me deepen the work I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. and you did, you did provide um, book club questions, for the, yeah. which is great because I'm sure you leaned into what were my essential questions and how can I engage the audience in discussing about these these themes and these really yeah. big, big questions? I think what's kind of different about this book, this collection too, is there are these links between stories. There are things that connect like this story and that story, this story and that story. There are these light 
connections between pairs of stories that pull it together. And then that motif with the Maya Angelou quotation about, you know, all the trouble the butterfly has to go through to, to become a butterfly. So I thought that was a nice way of tying all of them together. It seemed to work well. So I like, even though they're individual stories, it's kind of nice if there can be these little links that if someone reads a few of their stories, they go, I know where that comes from. And it's the kind of moment of awareness. So. And was that really intentional on your part? Or did it happen after when you looked at this collection and went, oh my goodness? <laughs> well, like you pulled one story out, right? But I probably pulled about 15 out. <laughs> so okay. it was sort of like these ones. I don't know how I left in the one that I left in that you took out. That was a very good call. It didn't fit. It was a great story. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, um, but the others, it was very careful choosing of what what goes together mm -hmm. there's a lot of stories sitting elsewhere that may just sit there <laughs> or they'll find a home in a magazine or like there's yeah. lots of opportunity right it's just yeah it's finding the right vehicle to get it out there i think it's different when you're making a collection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things have to yeah yeah so so that's where I lean on you a little bit oh, same with the ordering of the stories when you're going, I think we could do this. Yeah, I lean on you there. You have much more experience with that side of it. There is some kind of subtle themes throughout many of the stories around religion. Yep. Is that pulled from your own upbringing? For me, I, you know, I'm a person of faith. I have faith, but I also, you know, it kills me when you see sort of people using religion as a weapon or Bible bashing people over the head or kind of using it to manipulate. Uh, so not for the right reason. They have it almost like something they find useful to prove what a good person they are or something. So some of those false believers really it kind of irks me. I do my best not to judge, you know, um, but it really irks me when I see some of it being used in a manipulative way. I, I'm not open to that at all. So sometimes those characters do not fare well in some of my stories. Yeah. yeah. Flash mob fisherwoman. <laughs> yep. That story, it it's so strongly about hypocrisy. Um, yep. I, I think it's a brilliant use of imagery and ridiculousness. Like it, it's, it's kind of got everything that you need to make a really strong point about people misusing religion. I think it's really brilliant. And I'm excited to see people's reaction to stories like that and to see how, how it's taken, what they actually learn from it. I think the conversation around stories like that can be really, really interesting. And I'd love to be a fly on the wall in. in yeah, any, I think uh, I, I saw something on Twitter the other day. Someone put up, a, there was a sign outside a library. It said something like, there is something in here to offend everyone. So yeah, yeah it's probably borderline that yeah I'm I actually being, being offensive though I I suppose yeah there's yeah someone's always offended by something yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh no definitely I think when people use something in a terrible way so mm -hmm. in that story she uses an environmental organization to try and get more members to her church you know eventually and uh it's sort of shady a shady way at things instead of 
being direct about what you believe and what you don't. So yeah, those false people, they don't, they don't usually fare well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As we learn. Yeah, very true. My church is doing a bunch of stuff during the summer. Oh, this person knows photography. They'll teach a little stuff on photography. Oh, that one knows knitting. Oh, they can teach a little session on knitting or whatever. So I'm actually doing a little session on poetry with, uh, oh, with my church in the summer coming up on the 11th. So yeah, gives gives a chance for some people to see things in a different way, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, Do you uh, have a favorite piece of poetry from the Bible? Um, I think Psalms, like Psalms are, that's usually straight poetry all through there. So uh, some beautiful sayings there. Um, if you get, I guess, less fundamental or less direct translation and more poetic, you go back to like a King James Bible, which is very poetic, but maybe not the best translation, something like that. But the poetry is beautiful. So yeah, so something like Psalms, um, yeah, some of the flow in there is uh, quite beautiful. Is there anything else that we need to talk about that's really going to entice people? <laughs> well, I think, I think for me being a teacher, one current project I'm working on right now, my goal is to have it ready by the end of July, but I'm working on a workbook for the collection of short stories. So I'm kind of hoping the workbook ends up being longer than the collection of short stories. So I'm putting a lot of the writer's side of it. Here's what went into the making of this story, which you don't usually get to find mm. out when you pick up a book of short stories. And then also here's what you might teach if you're teaching creative writers or if you're you know, teaching high school or university. Here's some things you can do with this because in each one of these stories, there's kind of a different focus. Like my Singapore garden is kind of focused on contrast and paradox and something like the killing jar uses motif in many ways. And it kind of goes all the way through that. So there's a little bit, you know, Menos Coca, that story, it starts with focusing on fluency and sound. The first paragraph, the opening paragraph, you'll find, you know, alliteration and assonance and syllabication and you name it. And it's to create that beginning flow. And so I think each story has a focus that can be taught really well with that story. That's kind of a current project and we'll try and get that out there. And do you think you'll use that in your own classroom? I think so. I sometimes share work with kids. They're sharing work with me. Uh, sometimes I write with kids like, oh, it's right. You know, we're all head down. Let's go. Okay. They see I'm doing the same thing, facing the blank page. And sometimes that makes a difference. So if there's a personal element, if a student publishes something and we can share that, um, it kind of gets everyone going. So yeah. uh, it's kind of nice to work that in when you can. I'm just, I'm thinking back at high school English and my English writing teacher, I never saw him write. I never yeah. heard any of it. Right? It's sad. Yeah. I, That's I didn't interesting. Yeah. That, that should be just a natural part of that process, a more reciprocal teaching learning. So thank mm. you for doing that. I think teachers. Really special. Yeah. Yeah. I think for teachers nowadays, there's there are a lot of pressures. Mm -hmm. They're very busy people. Like in the last couple of years out here, we've had new courses that were kind of put on us in March last year, and they were to be taught September this year, like starting new school year. Well, we had no resources, no lessons, no anything, totally new courses. 
And it's like, no, you go find the resources. So I think I probably had to do something like about 900 different readings to find enough material to teach the course the way I wanted to, just because I had to weed out, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then this year, they told us about new assessment methods that we're going to have to use next year. So there's a lot that comes down on teachers. They're pretty busy people. So sometimes wow. there just aren't hours in the day, unless you wake up at four. <laughs> You cracked the code. <laughs> there you go. So How to Make a Killing Jar is set to release on August 30th. Yikes, so, yeah. Yeah, it's coming, coming really soon. <laughs> Are you open to people reaching out to you through your website or whatever if they pick up the book and they have questions or uh, if they want to invite you to their book club? Yeah, absolutely. I'm open to that. And I think grassroots, sometimes people lose, lose track of that. They're they're looking at numbers or they're looking at whatever. And, mm -hmm. um, but there's good conversations that can be had with a small group of people too. So I, I want to encourage that. And I want to encourage, you know, people to engage. And how many times have you been at a book club where the, you know, the author visited you by Zoom or in person? It doesn't happen. I think that's something I can offer. And I love working with others and hearing what they have to say. I uh, I heard Patrick Klein say once, he was giving a talk at, uh, I think, Vancouver Library. He said, oh, I love giving talks because, and he goes, I, I try not to talk too much, but I try to get them talking about the work. And he goes, because they'll tell me something I never realized was there and it wasn't intentional. But when they show it to me, I'm like, hmm. It's kind of there. So I sound a lot smarter the next time I teach that that poem or that story because, yeah, someone showed me something I wasn't aware of and kind of slid its way in. So, uh, so I think you can even learn about your work from mm -hmm. other people who read it and see it from a different angle. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of fun too. Really, fun. My kids do it all the time when we pull up a story. They'll teach me things for a story I've taught a zillion times and I never saw that. And yes it's there and you taught me something so those are exciting moments yeah and it's kind of proof that writing is evergreen like stories stories they're always they can always be fresh and you look at them with new eyes and there's always always something new to be gleaned so yeah. it's never a one-off right if there's some depth to the story that's always possible yeah. if it's fluff, it's fluff but <laughs> If sure. it's yeah, if it's a good story, there there should be something there that appeals to different people. Yeah, absolutely. And keep the conversation going. For sure. Now we are planning a Zoom event and I forget the date. Do you remember the date? Something September. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll yeah. see, but when we have it organized, you'll do a little a reading from the book. Uh we'll have QA if people want to engage that way. So there will be invitations that come out so people can sign up to do that. So that is coming. The book is coming out. Do you have any events planned in your area yet besides the conference? I mean, I think before that, um, I'm, I'm definitely connected to a lot of teachers and buildings and that kind of thing. So I'll probably do some things locally, put some materials in teachers' hands, uh, allow them to have a look. Um, I think some of the things I'll do ahead of time, one of the stories I may take out of the collection with the work I've prepared for it, kind of as a like a sampler, a sample, something like that, so people can get a taste of 
this is what it's like and get that out there to as many teachers as possible. And um, so encourage engagement that way, both ways, like, hey, tell me your, your thoughts, tell me your ideas about it, but also, you know, spend the 20 bucks and buy the book, you know, um, it, it's not a bad move or maybe a class set of them, you know, um, work with your kids. And so if that gets going, and I'm able to Zoom call with teachers in their classes or visit some classes <laughs> uh, when I have time, then uh, those are all things I'm open to. So, And you haven't mentioned something big. Oh, no. What's yeah. that? <laughs> the Atwood Gibson Writers Trust Prize. <laughs> so the book has been nominated for the... Thank you. Atwood Gibson Writers Trust, Trust. Award. Yeah. Yes. There we go which is a huge literary prize in Canada and would be a wonderful honor to be shortlisted and then of course to win. So yeah, excited to see how that all falls out. Yeah, it's kind of a new thing, new experience. I mean, amazing writers out there. So I know Guppy in the Shark Pond, but I think this book, I don't know, it's, it's a book I do believe in. And I think I think the the quality of the writing is there. So if the stories engage people in the right way, who knows? Yeah. But um, but yeah, very happy that you're able to do that. Just under the wire. <laughs> Just under the wire. Yeah, I think we were one day. They they received the books one day before the deadline. So yeah. <laughs> so we're good. Yeah. So a little bit of excitement there too, and yeah. all the work you've been putting in with the postings that you're doing and the videos you're making and. Much appreciated. Oh, of course. Yeah, my pleasure. I I love the collection. I'm I really am excited to uh, have it under Chicken House Press and to have been able to work on it. This one was really such a joy because the writing is so rich. Every time I read it again, as you said, I'm finding new things and appreciating new things, and the language is beautiful. I I think I I hope you're so so proud. Um, oh, yeah. I, this is. This is a book I'm very proud of. And good, good. I think all the elements came together. Yeah. Like like the big writers who I was able to get, you know, cover blurbs from because of contests I entered. And these yeah. were things they said about the writing. So the big cover blurbs, the picture that you chose, it's perfect for it. And beautiful cover design. And those little butterflies that you wound throughout the book, where did you get like that thought from because that was pure Alana and I love it. Um, it's kind yeah. of a visual, it's a little visual that goes through the whole book that pulls it together with the epigraph at the beginning about the butterflies. So where did that come from? <laughs> well, I my original idea was to actually do a flip animation of a, a jar falling over and a butterfly flying up the page as you flip. Oh, wow. Which would have been magical but <laughs> i i tried to enlist my daughter who is she's a bit of an artist to do this and so she was excited at first and then she got overwhelmed and she she couldn't so i was like well here's my compromise i'm going to get this this little butterfly drawing and and stick it on the chapter pages so it's actually a compromise from what my original vision was <laughs> wow no um no it's quite lovely because like literally cover beginning all the way through the book yeah. there it ties it together so nicely so you know i'm reading through the the advanced readings and uh i saw that and i was like wow what a good call so oh, yeah it's, okay. it's beautiful 
it's also beautiful inside the book. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a whole, the whole thing is just, it's a beautiful package. Yeah. So I think like all the elements coming together, it's kind of rare when everything fits, but I, I feel that about this book. Yeah. And even the journey of us getting connected. Um, oh, it's just, crazy. Yeah. Because how many years ago was it you entered a free Blank Spaces contest? I don't know, a few, but it's yeah. sort of went, that that was craziness. It was sort of, I entered a contest and I think the first free contest I entered, I hit the like bronze medal and I'm like, okay, nice to be recognized, but bronze, I can do better. <laughs> so I think about a month or two after that I entered another one and it was like silver and I'm like oh okay better but I'm sure I can do better so then a little while later you came out with your first um, fee contest you know pay a fee to enter this and I'm like yeah I think I'm ready for this bring it let's go and um, so then that led to uh, winning that contest, being published with the other seven writers who are finalists and their beautiful stories uh, in the things we leave behind. And then the chance for you to see a whole manuscript of my work as part of the prize. And then that's where this book came from. So that was kind of a just crazy sequence of good events, you know, that all came together. And then all of a sudden I go back to previous contests I've done well in and oh, there's the Jack White quotation, there's the Diana Gabaldon quotation. So just like everything found a home in this book. Yeah. And kind of like all of it coming together in one place. So that's why I think whatever happens in the future, this book it will kind of always be special to me. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me be part of that journey. Oh, thank you for making it better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you want to um, just let people know where they can find you online and learn more about you and what you're up to? I am reviving my website, fighttowrite.com. And um, sometimes put up little prompts, but sometimes I also do a little bit of uh, analysis work. Here's some techniques I really like in some writer's work. Uh, so things to learn there. So fighttowrite.com. And I'm on Twitter at writer ace baker those are my two main ones right now as i slowly carve out more time i'll probably slide into linkedin just to keep on top of what's going on writing community that kind of thing for now those are my two main ones so hopefully people look you up and learn more and engage i think that that's kind of the hardest thing is to get people to engage with us online so we'll keep encouraging i think it's good to learn from each other and i think to be humble enough that you go wow that writer really is gifted in this area there's a lot i can learn there and uh, you slowly start acquiring tools from different people's strengths so i think that's always positive keep yourself surrounded by people who are smarter than you it's, it's a good way to yeah don't be the smartest person in the room yeah yeah for sure all yeah. right so august 30th we're getting this book out in the world so everyone can great. look forward to that with anticipation thank you so much for making the time to do this it's great great to see you again and to chat and yeah yeah good to connect thank you so right. much enjoy the rest Have of your day <laughs> stay well okay you too bye bye-bye that was my conversation with Ace Baker. I hope you are inspired to go and check out the book to potentially pre-order or to put it on your list to order right on release date on August 30th. That live event we were talking about is going to be on Sunday, September 17th 
it is going to be over Zoom. You are all welcome. Go to chickennosepress.ca, find the events tab. You'll see it right in there. There's a registration form where you can RSVP to get the Zoom link sent right to you. Um, I hope to see you there. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Mm-hmm.